Good morning, family. My name is Mwati. Um, I think, and I have the I have the privilege of serving uh, you with the word this morning. Uh, what amazing weekend it was with Growth Weekend. Um, I think as a church, we we value your growth, and it's so so encouraging to see people also value their own growth, uh, and also seeing uh, the leaders that we have in our church value other people's growth as well, and calling people to participate um, in our Growth Weekend. Um, and as Pierre mentioned, we are, it's a free Sunday, so I'll be um, preaching from Matthew 4, verse 19 um, this evening, but before, I mean this morning, but before we, we, we open the word, um, for those of you who are still new, let me just share quickly about myself. My name is Mwiti. Uh, I am married to the lovely Sianda, and we, we made two kids together, um, Uminati and Yomelela. Um, we haven't been sleeping recently. Uh, but the Lord is good. <laughs> this too shall pass. Uh, <laughs> um, and you know, I've been speaking to parents who've been parents for a while. Um, and they say, oh, you'll miss the days when they're still young. You'll miss them. And I'm just like, no. I'm not enjoying them. How can I miss something I do not enjoy? Can they just get to five? I just need to have a conversation. Yeah, yeah. Just let's, let's talk it out. Let's reason why are you throwing a tantrum. Let's tell me. Tell me. <laughs> Um, awesome. So, um, so I grew up in a home where we went to church on a Sunday. Uh, I was dragged along and I never knew why we're going to church. Uh, also I had to dress a, a, a particular way. I just remember one Sunday I, wear sh- I wore shorts and I wore flops, um, because I'm just like, this is comfortable. Let me just go to church like this. And my parents were like, no, you cannot go to church dressed like that. Uh, you always have to look nice in your Sunday best. And so I just started getting this view that, you know, when it comes to church, all they want from me is my performance. Um, They don't want the real me. They just want me to perform. They want me to put on a a facade. And so obviously I went to church because I I had no choice. Um, I grew up in that kind of household where it's like we are all going to church. If you are staying behind, you are not staying behind in this house. Um, so, (laughs) So you can decide, are you going to roam the streets or are you going to go to church? And I was like, might as well go to church. And for the longest of times, I did not know what the point of being a Christian is. Uh, I think still this day, I still don't know. Don't panic. Stay with me. (laughs) Stay with me. Stay with me. When we look throughout scripture, the term Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. It's only used three times. In the Old Testament, it's not used at all because it was all around the Israelites and around the Jewish culture. And in the New Testament, the word Christian is used three times. And when the word Christian is being used in Scripture, uh, it is being used as an insult towards believers. And the reason why it was an insult is because believers had made a public declaration that Jesus is their Lord and that they will not bow down to the emperor of Rome. And so the Romans in that town, to make fun of the believers and the followers of Jesus, would call them Christians. You who do not follow our customs. You who do not serve our emperor Rome. You who serve this Jesus uh, whom we crucified on the, on the cross. You are a Christian. It wasn't a compliment. It was an insult. Three times the word Christian was used in the New Testament. So biblically, a Christian is someone who does not acknowledge the lordship of the world, but the lordship of Jesus. 
Because remember, they were called Christians because they had surrendered their lives to Jesus and not the system and systems of the world, not the things of the world, not the politics of the world, not the culture in the world, but they had surrendered their lives to Jesus. And so we can then infer that a Christian is someone who has said, I reject the world and I wholly and completely surrender my life to Jesus. Jesus being Lord means that he has the final say over each and every single thing in our lives. He has final say over how we spend our money, who we spend our time with, where we go on holiday, where we work, how we raise our children. Each and every single decision he has final say over. And as I was preparing the sermon, I was convicted. I had to repent because I think I have gotten to a place where I have believed in my heart and in my mind that I am an adult of God. Meaning because now I'm an adult, because I'm making money, because I no longer live with my parents, I can make decisions in my life because ultimately I believe that I know what's best. But again, you can page throughout scripture. You will not find the term adult of God, but rather you'll find child of God. And when I think of my children, their schedule, what they eat, what they wear, is dictated by my wife. So that is the life that we are called to live, a life where Jesus dictates each and every single thing in our lives. I remember we used to joke um, back when I was still in Joburg that uh, uh, we, we ought to pray each morning when we get dressed and ask the Lord, Lord, what shall we wear today? And one of the guys joked and he said, uh, what if just the voice of God, all you hear is like, Lord, what should I wear today? What color should I wear? And all you hear is, <laughs> Instead of like a loud, booming voice. How many of us today can safely say that he is Lord? How many of us can safely say that he has final say over the, the life that we live? How we spend our time, how we, we spend our finances, how we relate with people. The way that we live our lives shows the world that we are living in a different kingdom. The early followers of Jesus lived their life in such a way that the world knew that they are under a different authority. Can the people who are closest to you say that you live under a different authority or does your life look like theirs? I don't know personally if people would say my life looks different to theirs as well. There's a word that the early followers of Jesus were known as. And this word appears 261 times in the four Gospels and the book of Acts. That word is disciple. May I humbly submit to you that in our day and age, a Christian is someone who believes in God or someone who just goes to church. So this is not the biblical definition of Christian, but rather this is the definition that we have seen over time. You can ask someone, are you a Christian? And they would say yes, simply because they go to church. They believe that they are a Christian. 
Yesterday in Making Disciples Training, a question was asked that 85% of South Africans, when they do the census and they ask just their religious beliefs, 85% of South Africans say they are Christian. Does South Africa look Christian? It does not. And so therefore we can infer that because of how the world looks, how South Africa looks specifically, and 85% of people saying they are Christian, somewhere along the line we have lost the meaning of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. How many people do we know personally who profess to be Christians, yet their life reflect nothing of Jesus? In fact, I'd go as far as to say, people say, I am Christian, as to say, no, I'm not a Muslim, no, I am not a Buddhist, no, I am not this, but I am Christian. And so, a disciple is someone who lives by personal conviction of who Jesus is based on biblical truth and reproduces it in others. A disciple is someone who lives by personal conviction of who Jesus is based on biblical truth and reproduces it in others. James 2 verse 18 to 19 says the following, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And so we see that Christians can say, yes, I believe in God. Yes, I have faith in God. But do, do, does their life reflect that belief in God? Does their life reflect that they are surrendered to God? Whereas a disciple can safely say, I will show you my faith by my works because I am living a life that I am convicted by biblical truth and I am reproducing this truth in others. Could you please stand as we read the word? With that being said, the, the title of my sermon is Don't Be a Christian. Don't be a Christian. Matthew 4 uh, from verse 18 says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 21. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat of Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Father, thank you that your word stands true till this day. Thank you that you are calling us to come and follow you. Thank you, Father, that you are sovereign, that you are God, and that you are good. And I pray, Father, whatever thoughts and ideas I have this morning, that I surrender them at your feet, and that you would be the one to speak to your children. We are your children, and we want to hear from you as our Father. We let, get, we let go of the cares of the world. We let go of our own thoughts and ideas and preconceived notions of what it means to follow you. And we are here to hear from you, so we can live lives that will reflect your glory and your beauty on this earth. So that we can live lives where we can see restoration not only happening in our families, but in the families of our colleagues. We can see restoration happening in our neighbors. We can see restoration happening in our community. And we can see restoration happening in our nation. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So, 
as I was preparing and going through the scripture, I asked myself a few questions. Why would Jesus, who's starting such an important ministry, the savior of the world, the Messiah, the one who's been prophesied over a thousand generations and thousands of years, come and ask fishermen to be the ones who will carry this mission? Surely he could have found people who uh, had more, a better stature in society. Surely he could have found more important people to carry this mission with. Surely he could have found people who weren't um, the in the lower class of society. Surely he could have approached the emperor to be the one to execute this mission so that there's a top-down change in um, the Israelites' community at that time. But here's why he chose fishermen. So in the Israelite culture back in the day, you're part of your schooling. You would start by the age of five years old, um, and you would sit uh, in the temple. So basically what it looked like today is that you basically send your kids to church every day. And when they get to the temple, they learn about the word of God. And so by the age of seven or eight, they are able to, re uh, to recite the Torah, which is the first five books uh, in the Bible. So by the age of eight, nine years old, they know from memory what the word of God says. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. They knew those books by heart because they were taught these books from the age of five years old. What would our nation look like if we prioritized instilling the word of God in young people? Food for thought. And so, and so you, you, you go to the temple, you learn, you learn, you learn, you learn. And by the age of around 12, 13 years old, that is when your formal education stops. And it is at that age you now need to approach a rabbi in order to continue your ed education. And so they would approach a rabbi, and if the rabbi saw potential in them to become like them as the rabbi, then the rabbi would take them in under their tutelage and continue training them up, up until the age of 18 to 20 years old. Sometimes rabbis, because they were teaching these kids in the temple uh, up until that age of 13, the rabbi would approach the child and say, come under my tutelage, come follow me. And that was an honor because then, as a young person, you knew that you had the stuff in you to be able to lead people spiritually. You knew the law, you knew the word of God so well that you had potential to shape the future spiritually of a nation. But then there were some who rabbis did not see good enough to continue their education. And so at the age of 13, they would go and they would learn a trade. <clears throat> and so now, Jesus is approaching 13-year-olds who are fishermen. They are fishing with their fathers because their fathers as well were rejected from continuing their biblical education. And so they became fishermen. In the eyes of society, they were not good enough to lead the nation spiritually. That was reserved only for a select few. And just as uh, 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 an ad on the side, this is for free, this is not part of the sermon, we see that because Jesus valued young people so much, we as a church value the next generation. We prioritize the next generation because Jesus did. 
the reason why we have kids church on a Sunday uh, and Ellen who leads kids church who prays and prepares so well is because we as a church value the biblical formation of an, each and every single young person. The reason why we have youth happening in conjunction on a Sunday is because we value the next generation. The reason why we reach, uh, can, we plant churches and campus ministries in every nation, not just churches, churches and campus ministries in every nation is because we value the next generation. The reason why we have broom ball this Thursday evening is because the young adults will fold and allow the students to win because we value the next generation. <laughs> And so I want to ask that as Jesus valued the next generation, may we also value the next generation. In, in Judges 2 verse 10, it says the following. A generation grew up who did not know the Lord or the mighty works he did in their generation. That happens when we don't value the next generation. When we don't tell the next generation who God is and what our God can do in this world. When we don't prioritize teaching and discipling the next generation in the word of God. Our nation will not know God. That was an ad. See, say skip ad right there. So, <laughs> so how then do we follow Jesus? Because the invitation is out there. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishes of men. Is it enough to listen to a sermon about Jesus to follow him? Is it enough to read a book that speaks about Jesus to follow him? You see, when a rabbi called a disciple and said, come, follow me, what he was saying is, come, pattern your life after my life. So the habits that I do, when I wake up in the morning and I pray, you also ought to wake up with me in the morning and pray. When I go speak to a sick person and lay hands on them and pray for them to get sick, you lay hands on the sick and pray for them to get healed. When I bring restoration in society as a whole, you also follow me and do as I'm doing and bring restoration in society as a whole. When I teach people the word of God, when I'm teaching people parables about who God is and how they can follow God and how they can fall under a new kingdom rather than the kingdom of the world, you go teach people how to follow God, how to read the word of God, how to obey the voice of God through the word of God. And so we ought to pattern our lives after Jesus. But we haven't seen Jesus because Jesus is seated in heaven. Therefore, how can we follow him if we cannot see him? We see Jesus through the word. When we read the word, it's not just an activity to keep us busy and pass the time uh, and it's something, that puffs, uh, it's something that gives us knowledge about what it says in the Bible, but rather it allows us to see how Jesus lived and therefore we live the same way that he lived. Even when you're reading the Old Testament, the Old Testament testifies about Jesus and therefore we can see Jesus as well. In the Old Testament. Jesus is not just in the New Testament, but he is in the Old Testament as well because he is testified about. And so when we have a relationship with our Bible, when we spend time in the Word of God, because the Word of God isn't just words on a page, but it's the window to the heart and the mind and the soul of God. We get to see what God values, and therefore, when we see what God values, we value what he values. When we see the mistakes of past generations, the sins that they've committed, we also repent of those sins and follow the word of God where God was leading them towards repentance. 
We follow by spending time in the word and studying the word of God, by having a personal relationship with Jesus through his word. The Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yes, it was physically written by men simply because God did not want to do, uh, he did not want to bring the gospel and establish his kingdom alone, but he wanted man to take part in that mission as well. And so therefore, he inspired the word to be written. He spoke uh, to the prophets of old, uh, to the leaders of old, and said, write down these words so that future generations can know how to follow me through this word. The Bible is the only book where we have access to the author, where we can invite the author to sit with us and explain what it is that he has written in this book and how we can pattern our lives around the word of God. So we have access to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit personally can reveal, can lead us into truth. And so let us not read the Bible uh, as an academic exercise. But as we read the Bible, this is a life-changing word. It literally can change our lives. The word of God gives us an opportunity to wrestle with our beliefs. Simply because we have been raised a certain way, society has told us a specific amount of truths in this world, and we have believed those things, and we, and we live our lives according to, the, according to the principles and the patterns of the world. And therefore, as we read the word of God, we bring all our beliefs, we bring every single pattern, and we submit it to the word, and we compare it to the word. I'm not a lawyer, so um, lawyers, please forgive me if I butcher this example. I, I, I thought about the word conviction. How do we get to a conviction? And I was reminded that in, in court, there's a, there's a defense uh, and there's a prosecutor, and the charges are brought forward. And then there's a debate and there's a deliberation and evidence is presented. Uh, a case is made until a verdict is reached. And once the judge gives that uh, verdict and say, okay, I, I find you guilty or I find you innocent, that means that conviction is now final. What the judge has said about that person affects how they're going to live life from that point onward. If the judge says this person is guilty, that means for the rest of their lives or however long the sentence is, they are going to be in prison. If the judge says now they are free, that means they need not fear the punishment of the law, but now they can live in freedom. When we bring our beliefs, when we bring our thoughts, when we bring our emotions before the word of God, it is an opportunity for us to have that court case. It's an opportunity for Jesus as our defender and the devil as our prosecutor for the, to have that wrestle over the beliefs of the word, over the beliefs in the world, in the word. And we eventually get to a place where we have tested, where we have thought about, where we have reasoned, where we have uh, provided witnesses, where a case has been fully made for us to believe in the word of God. And God being a good father and a righteous judge, he has the final say. And because he said, this is how you ought to live, we ought to believe and stand in agreement with that judgment and have the same conviction that he has given. That is how we follow Jesus. <coughs> but it's not an individual exercise. You don't do it alone because you can't follow Jesus alone. We see in the scripture that Jesus called up two brothers to follow him, immediately after he went to 
another family and he called up another two brothers to come and follow him. So in the beginning of his ministry, there were four people already and eventually there was 12, then there was 72, and then there was 500, and then the world was reached with the gospel. We can't follow Jesus alone because this is the pattern that Jesus has made. Jesus could have come and restored the kingdom of God all by himself. But he chose not to. Without man, God won't. Without man, God won't do anything on this world because he has called us to be co-laborers with him. In the Garden of Eden, when God said, all authority, when God gave us um, dominion over creation, over animals, over the fi uh, fish of the sea, he was giving us authority to lead alongside him. But because of the fall, we lost that authority. And Jesus is coming back to restore that authority over our lives that we can lead spiritually in this world. You can't follow Jesus alone. You need a spiritual family. And let us allow scripture also to define what family is. One of, one of the things that I have learned is that in the African context, um, everyone is your family, right? So uh, in my family, for instance, my, 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 my mom's sister is also my mom. Right? And so even in our language, I'm going to directly translate it. It's going to sound bad, but it's big mom, right? Because she's older than my mom. Uh, if she was younger than my mom, she'd be small mom, right? Mom Kulu, mom Nane. Simply because the same authority that my mom has over my life, they have over my life as well. So my cousins aren't cousins. I only learned that when I learned English. <laughs> they are my brothers and sisters as well. And so everyone is essentially my family. And so, uh, but I've learned that that's not true for everyone. Because I've learned on the other side that family is who you choose. Right? Um, because it's like, no, it's just us as a nuclear family. This is family. And so even linguistically, there's terms like first cousin, second cousin, third cousin. Still don't know what that means. But all I know it means that you are further from us as family. You're not, you're not close. You're just further. You're family, yes, but family from afar. <laughs> but we see uh, in this scripture that Jesus did not care about all those dynamics. He brought disciples together and said, this is family. When one of the disciples um, at the cross was speaking about Jesus, your mother wants to speak to you, and she was like, no, 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 she's now your mother. She's now your sister as well. Jesus defines who our family is. And if you feel the Lord is adding you to this church, that means he's not just adding you to a church, but he's adding you to a family. And so we are all brothers and sisters. We can all speak into each other's lives. We can all serve one another because we are family. In 1 Peter 5, it says the following. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. When a lion hunts, it looks for the isolated. It looks for the ones who aren't in family. If you are going to stand as a disciple of Jesus, you need to be in family. Otherwise, you are vulnerable to the enemy. Who here has tried having a bri with one piece of charcoal? That fire will not last. 
you won't be able to cook any piece of meat. But as soon as you bring a lot of charcoal together, that fire lasts and it burns strong and you are able to cook meat properly. It's the same as us as a believer, that if you are isolated, you are vulnerable to the enemy. He will devour you because he's looking for someone to devour. When we are outside of family, we are going to be the charcoal where the fire will not burn strong. It will burn bright and quick, but it will not burn long. But when we are in family, we get to run the race with endurance simply because we're not running alone, but we are running together as a family. And so when someone is hurting, we are hurting because we are the body of Christ. When our leg is hurting, we can't run because our legs are hurting. That is how Jesus defines family. And as my closing point is the following. Um, in John 14, it says the following. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. When a rabbi saw someone, more specifically, when Jesus saw someone, he said, come follow me because you can also do greater things than I have done in this world. And the rabbis used to judge it according to the flesh and looking just at their knowledge and their, at their intellect, at their social standing, at everything of the flesh. But Jesus looks at us sinful, fallen human beings and he says, with my Holy Spirit in you, Though right now you can't do anything of significance in the world, but with my Holy Spirit in you, you can do greater works than I have done. Jesus raised people from the dead. We too can raise people from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in Scripture isn't now less powerful now because it's been existing for a long time. The Holy Spirit that we see in Scripture is still the Holy Spirit that we have access to today. So we should be seeing people getting healed. We should be seeing people getting delivered from demonic oppression. We should be seeing people getting raised from the dead. But are we willing to be a disciple and pattern our life after Jesus so that the greater works that Jesus did, we can do even greater by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm changing my sermon title. It's don't be a Christian, rather be a disciple. Don't be a Christian. Don't be someone who just goes to church or prays when they're in trouble, but rather be a disciple. Be someone who lives by, lives by conviction of biblical truth and reproduces it in others. When you know the truth, you can't help but teach others about the truth because you see that they are believing a lie. So let us be disciples. So as I close, one of the things I'd like to um, encourage us to do is we have something called connect groups in our church. Connect groups is a part of discipleship where we get around other believers. We connect to God through his word. We connect to each other because we are family. And from our connect groups, we connect to the world because God is calling us to be fishers of men. As we follow Jesus, as we pattern our lives after Jesus, he will make us fishers of men simply because he is fishing for men. 
Jesus isn't concerned about having theological debates and finding out what you believe and what this other person believes, this, that, and the other. He's more concerned about seeing those who aren't part of his kingdom being restored into his kingdom. He's more concerned about the empty seats that are in this venue that can be filled up by people who are out there in the world right now. He's more concerned about the size of this venue because this venue is too small to bring about the change that God wants to bring in this world. Because he is calling us to be fishers of men. And so after the service, I'm going to ask our LG leaders to come to the front and you can sign up to be a part of a connect group. You can ask our LG leaders because these are disciples. These are people who are following Jesus actively, who are fishing for the lost. And they can share with you testimonies of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus and how Jesus has transformed their lives. If you need prayer as well and you want to be a disciple and you've been struggling to truly follow Jesus because there are things that are happening in your life that are hindering you from following Jesus, come after the service and receive prayer as well. Our LG leaders will be here in the front to help you get into a connect group and help you be a disciple of Jesus. Amen.